Good morning from me. My name's Peter. And your name is? Linda. Everyone's name is Linda. Good morning, Lindas, this morning. Hope you're doing well. Um, I'm, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, uh, so I have no excuse. Um, here's a question I want to open with this morning. Uh, I want to ask you is, would you have liked to have been around when Jesus was in the flesh? Would you? Um, would it have made a difference to you? Would it make a difference to you now if you could see Jesus in the flesh? Um, what about the people around you that, um, that don't trust in Jesus, don't believe in Jesus, wouldn't call themselves Christians? The ones that you talk to about Jesus, um, do you wish they could see Jesus in the flesh? Um, would, it, would it have made a difference to them if, if they could see some miracles? Um, now, you might be tempted to say, uh, yes, I'd like him around. Um, and uh, you, you might even just go, yeah, I'm pretty sure my friends, uh, it would make a difference for my friends that don't know Jesus to have him physically around. But perhaps there's some of you that hesitate. Uh, you hesitate a little bit because you know that becoming a Christian has a lot more to do, um, sorry, it, it has much more, there's much more going on than mere intellectual persuasion. You know, if you've been here at uh, Restoration Church, as we've been working through John chapter 6, uh, you might even hesitate because of that. You remember uh, the section where the Jews asked for another sign, even though they'd seen the feeding of the 5,000. Um, you know other stories in the Gospels where people come to Jesus asking him to do another party trick, uh, but it still kind of didn't seem to get them across the line. And maybe even for you personally, you've had conversations with your friends. and Maybe you've even gotten them to the point of intellectual assent. They agree intellectually with, uh, with what you're saying, but somehow the final step hasn't actually been taken. Uh, last week in John chapter, John chapter 6, we looked at... Today is a day for mispronunciation of words. Did you enjoy that from Peter before? <laughs> I, uh, I did. Uh, so did my boys. Uh, I just said to him, actually, I said, you're the first person who's ever sworn on stage at this church. So that's, um, that's really cool. But last week in John chapter 6, we looked at how Jesus went full disclosure um, on people who are listening to him by telling them who he, who he is. And he said, I am the bread of life. And what we actually see in the next section in John chapter 6 is people's response comes into full focus. And it's something that's been going on the whole way along in this conversation that Jesus is having uh, with the Jews, and uh, as far as we can tell, it looks like most of this conversation happened in the synagogue at Capernaum. Uh, and as Jesus is more and more clear about who he is, the audience's response to him becomes more and more clear also. Um, they, they don't see who Jesus is, and, um, <clears throat> and what follows is Jesus' teaching about why they don't. Now, today... Uh, what I'm going to preach on is going to raise a lot of questions for uh, some of you, uh, and I'm going to, we're going to have a Q&A at the end, so I'll, I'll do the sermon, we'll sing, there'll be a Q&A, and on the screen there'll be a mobile phone number for you to text your questions to, so we're not going to just take questions from the audience out loud, so you'll just need to text them through, and we'll get through as many as we can at the end. Uh, but for now, let's just open up to John chapter 6, 
And we're going to start at verse 41. So if you've got your Bibles there, it would be, be great. John chapter 6, verse 41. John 6:41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among, among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I'll give uh, for the life of the world is my flesh. So we're going to look at three things today. The first thing we're going to look at is a tell and grumble. <laughs> Second thing we're going to look at is stuck fast. And the last thing we're going to look at again, like we did last week, is a good father. I want you to have a look at verse 41 to 43 in John chapter 6. And you'll notice that there's a word that pops up a few times there, and it's the word grumble. Um, verse 41, so the Jews grumble. Jesus tells them in verse 43, don't grumble. Now, this is an interesting development. If you've been here for the last few weeks, one of the things that you'll notice uh, in John here, in John chapter 6, is John's connecting what Jesus is doing to Moses in the Old Testament. That's what he's actually doing. Um, so you've got the feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness, which is kind of like the Israelites being in the wilderness and God providing manna. Then Jesus walks on the water. You've got Another kind of trick that God's doing with water, but it's better this time because Jesus doesn't go through it. He walks on it, but the people of Israel went through it in the Old Testament. Uh, you've got the, um, the Jews coming back to Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000 and saying, give us some more manna. Moses did this thing day after day for 40 years. Can you give us some more, like do another party trick for us? And then we get to this bit where it talks about grumbling. Now... Can anyone think of any parallel in the uh, Israelite story where grumbling's a feature? It's like right in the center of it, right? Um, it's right in the center of this, this moment where the Israelites don't have any, any food and they grumble about God and about Moses and God provides manna. And John has actually said in John chapter 6, this is that Jesus is the, the bread of life. He is the thing that the manna was actually pointing to. So what I want to do is go back to the, um, the section in Exodus 16 and just have a quick look at it because I think it's, it's hugely relevant to, um, to how we understand John chapter 6. And I'm just going to ask some nice person up the back to advance a slide on two for me. Excellent. Can we just go one more? Great. Exodus 16, this is where the grumbling happens, so follow it with me. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, ironic, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. 
And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Now this, you've got to understand with humanity, uh, you know, romantic revisionist history is a thing, all right? They're getting beaten and killed, but now they're actually in the wilderness and they don't have food and Egypt starts to look really good. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What have we got here? Well, we've got people who are grumbling. What are they grumbling about? Well, they're grumbling about not getting food. And you know what's going on here? Uh, like some of you go, well, that, that's fair enough. There's a lot of them out there. They need food. But one of the things you need to realize is uh, most of the troubles that we have actually don't come from evil desire. It comes from desires that get too big. So theologians call them inordinate desires. They get too big. And so what you've actually got going on here is actually an everyday desire for food, but it's too big. And it gets messy, gets evil. And what, what, is, what is really going on here for the Israelites? Well, they want what they want and they want it the way that they want it. They want life on their terms. But I'll tell you something and I'll just be really straight with you. We'll be honest about stuff at, at Restoration Church here. Uh, God is the only one who gets life on his terms. No one else gets life on their terms. Uh, but that's what they want. Now, interestingly, who do, um, who do the people grumble to? Well, this is really interesting too. Uh, look at the way that they understand it. Have a look up on the screen there. Uh, who's responsible for them copping and beating in Egypt? The Lord. Verse 3, And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. At some level, they're blaming God for that. And whose fault is it that they've come out of Egypt and they don't have any food now? It's Moses' fault, right? It's Moses' fault. And they, they, this is a massive accusation. They say Moses just brought them out to kill them. That's what he did. It's massive. Such a twisted way of looking at it. And this is one of the realities that you just need to be aware of. And we'll get more to this in a minute. But when everyday desires get too big, they get inordinate what it actually does is it actually flattens the world around us and things are nowhere near as nuanced as they ought to be. This is a really flat way of looking at it. God was the problem in Egypt and Moses just brought us out to kill us. So God talks to Moses and he tells Moses that he's going to provide manna every day for the people. Then Moses and Aaron actually announce it. Here's the uh, announcement. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. You see the point that's being made there? What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So this is, you know what this is? This is people having a whinge. They think that they're complaining against Moses. And then there's like a whoops moment. <laughs> Have you ever had that where you're saying something and then the person that you're actually talking about is just over your shoulder and they just heard everything that you said? This is the kind of moment here that's going on. And notice how it ends here. Notice how it ends. 
God is the one who brought them out of Egypt and it is God who's going to feed them. God brings it all together. And we talked about this in uh, John 6 a number of weeks ago. It isn't just that Jesus provides bread. Jesus is the bread of life. We separate and divide things. God brings things together in himself. And if you notice the bowl and the italicized stuff at the end, uh, you just seem to know that God listens to everything. He listens to everything. Now, I wonder if you notice any similarity between this story and uh, where we were in John chapter 6. Here's John 6. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Do you see the similarity? The people of Israel actually were grumbling and complaining about God right in front of him. And when we get to John chapter 6, what's happening? There's more Jews grumbling and complaining about Jesus right in front of him. So let me ask you this question. Um, do you think grumbling's a problem? Now, this is a tricky one for Australians to answer, right? Because we pretty much never use the word grumble or grumbler. What's the word that we use? A whinger. Right? And Australians do not tolerate whingers. Has anyone noticed it? It's like stop whinging. Right? We don't like complainers. And so, in a sense, you might go, yeah, uh, it is a problem. Grumbling is a problem. But do you think it's a problem for Moses and the Israelites um, in that story? I wonder what you'd say. Yes or no? There's probably some of you who kind of go, well, it's, it's about food, right? And you can't live without food. But, but you have to say yes, right? That grumbling is actually a problem. And the next, the next thing is, if you go, yeah, grumbling's a problem, the next question you need to answer is, why do you think grumbling's a problem? Why is it a problem? And this is key. <laughs> is, is it a problem because you don't like listening to people complain? Or is there something deeper actually going on? Here's, here's what grumbling says. And you, you ought to be careful, right? Because if you're a grumbler, you will grumble even if people tell you to be quiet. It just goes onto the black market, right? You find ways to do it. You find ways to grumble. Because the essence of what's going on in grumbling is not just the speech thing. It's not like we can just tell them we don't tolerate whinges, so you need to stop, and so the grumbling stops. It's actually a heart condition that keeps going, even if people get told that we're not interested in hearing what they've got to say. Here's what grumbling says. Grumbling says to God, I don't like the way you're making my life go. You ever thought that? David Powlison uh, put it this way. David Powlison said, grumbling is dissatisfaction with what is. And then Paul Tripp kind of pokes in even more and needles us even more and he says this. He says, grumbling is the background drone of a discontented heart. What's the problem with Grumbling. The problem with grumbling is in grumbling, the grumbling reveals, whether it's audible or you just grumble to yourself in silence, 
Grumbling reveals that there's something that you want more than Jesus. And you're unhappy with Jesus because he's not actually giving it to you. And so in this sense, grumbling is idolatrous. Grumbling happens when we love and cherish something other than Jesus and he's not actually giving it to us. As I said before, it's when a desire gets too big. And at the end of the day, folks, grumbling is a problem because it's about having life on our own terms. And it's usually connected to everyday desires. We know how it should be and we're cranky that it's not rolling our way. It's a sign our hearts are indicating that we're unhappy about the fact that Jesus is not on board with our program. Now, come back with me to John chapter 6. You see that operating in John 6? 100%. They wanted another party trick. They wanted more bread. And do you know something? Jesus wasn't playing ball, was he? He wasn't playing ball with their agenda. So you know what they do? They do what we do. Write him off, right? They start talking about, oh, we know who this guy is. We know who his parents are. And who is he to say that he thinks he knows what it is? And we can do this sometimes, can't we? It's like, I don't want it anyway. <laughs> I don't want it anyway. I'm going to write you off. I'm going to pretend like it's not a deal for me. Find a way for me to keep going on with a program that I'm wanting to go on with. And so, well, it's a good thing we're not like the Israelites, right? Do you grumble? What would the people who live with you say? What would your best friend say? And, and a follow-up question, uh, what does your grumbling sound like? You know, if we're honest, all of us ought to be able to say, well, it's grumbling's a hard attitude that's probably going to pop up for all of us at some point in time. All right? Just be honest about it. Pre- preachers are not exempt. Um, it's how it's going to pop up. You know, the, the dislike of whinges in Australian culture can stifle it, but it won't necessarily deal with it because it's a hard, a hard attitude that's going to go underground. We're more prone to it than what we think. Number two. First one was a telling grumble. The second one is stuck fast. I want you to have a look at verse 44. Uh, I'm going to put it on the screen. You can look at it in your Bible there. Here it is. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, this is a cracker, all right? And probably for some of you already, your head's starting to head in a whole bunch of different directions. There's a bunch of rabbit trails you want to head down. Um, But before you do that, I I want to encourage you to hang with the context here and don't run off with it at this point in time. We'll uh, crack open a can of worms later on. And see how we go. But just hang with the context uh, for a little bit. All right. What Jesus is doing here in John chapter 6 is he's explaining why people don't come to him. There's something which prevents people from coming to Jesus. They're looking at the bread of life itself. He's teaching them and yet they're missing him. They don't get him. Clearly there's some kind of problem with the people who are listening because they just don't get it. And, and the question you need to ask at this point in time is, what is it that's actually stopping people coming to Jesus? Now, sometimes when people read scriptures like this, they get the idea that there's all these people that want to come to Jesus and it's God that's actually stopping them from getting there. 
all right? And I want to say to you, uh, that's just not the case. Uh, it's, it's easy to drift with a scripture like this and go, God's getting in people's way. I want to say to you this morning that if there were all these people that genuinely at a heart level wanted to come to Jesus and God stopped them, he would be evil. All right? He would be evil. But look at the context here. Is this what's happening in the context of John chapter 6? <laughs> not on your life. They're not wanting to come to Jesus. They're grumbling about him. They don't even like him. So you can't kind of land there with that one. Um, there's no indication here that they want Jesus at all. Well, what do they want? Well, they want life on their terms. That's what they want. Uh, they want life on their terms. So it raises the question, I think, what's the blockage? Why don't they come to Jesus? Well, I think you need to go back to the heart attitude of grumblers. I think that's what you need to do both in Jesus' day in John 6 and also in Exodus 16. So answer this question for me. For a grumbler, who is in the centre of their world? They are. They are. They're in the centre of their world. Now, when you're in the centre of your world, how does the Bible describe that? Pride? Uh, Self-worship? Self-idolatry? And I want to say to you, and you can see this in John chapter 6, you can also see it in Exodus 16, is that when you're in the center of your world, it fundamentally shifts the way that you see God and everyone else around you. It just does. It fundamentally shifts it. The Latin phrase, in curvatus in se, captures it well. We curve in on ourselves. And other people either become objects who either serve our self-worshipping ends or they need to get out of the way. If you go and have a read of James chapter 4, um, the first couple of verses kind of flesh this out. Listen to this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see, people are being ruled by their desires, which have become too big. And then um, James goes on to call them adulterous people because it's, it's taken over their hearts, it's taken over their affections and other people around them either need to get on board with their program or just get out of the way. And sometimes, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but people don't get out of the way. And if someone isn't on board with your program and they won't get out of the way, then what do you need to do? Get them out of the way, which is James 4, right? It's murdering. And it comes down to literal murder. And self is in the center. You see, it's not Jesus and it's not the Father in John chapter 6 that is stopping the people coming to Jesus. It's the people's obsession with life happening on their terms that's stopping them come, coming to Jesus. And so you know what happens? They don't come to Jesus. And it makes sense. And I'm just going to give you like a, hopefully a three-minute cook's tour on idolatry, all right? Because you need to know this. It actually gets worse than this because of idolatry. We actually see in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. 
They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This is how idolatry works. You swap the true God for a lie, right? And you know what happens when you swap a truth for a lie? You end up living in a false reality every single time. And what's the lie of an idol? The lie of an idol is that it's God, that it can save you. You know, we put ourselves in the center of our lives and we think that's going to go really well. We can make the rules, we can save ourselves, we can make our world happen the way that we want it to happen. But in reality, what we're actually doing is we're living in a false reality. And you know something? Once you believe a lie, you're stuck. Once you believe a lie, you're stuck. There's an amazing satirical piece in Isaiah 44 about the idol maker and the idol worshipper. It says uh, at the end of the section, it's, it's this bit right here. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? The idol maker and worshipper is so disoriented, he doesn't know which ends up. And he's stuck, right? He's stuck. So on the basis of all of that, what, what's stopping the people coming to Jesus? And by extension, what stops people in our day from coming to Jesus? Well, we don't see clearly. But it isn't just about not seeing clearly we are stuck enslaved to our sin this is what happens when you swap the truth for a lie and you can see this happening all over the place i mean in an ultimate sense this is what everyone who doesn't know jesus has done it's what we did before we came to jesus we swapped the truth for a lie and we were stuck and we even still do it a little bit now as, as Christians, right? If you're a Christian, it's like you have times where you swap the truth for a lie. Your desires get too big. You love things that you shouldn't be loving the way that you're loving them. We get enslaved to our sin. We can't get out. It isn't the Father that is stopping people coming to Jesus. They are. They're stopping themselves coming to Jesus. Because here's the bottom line, and I want you to hear this, and this is relevant not just for people who don't know Jesus, but it's also relevant for the rest of us. Because we get sucked into it too, right? You can't have life on your terms and see Jesus clearly. You hear that? You can't have life on your terms and see Jesus clearly. You have to do life on God's terms. And this is one of the reasons... The big reason why Jesus says over and over that if you actually want life, what do you have to do? You have to die. <laughs> you have to die because you're never going to see him clearly unless you die to yourself, unless you give your life away. You see, what did the people in John chapter 6 need? What do you and I need? We need to be able to see Jesus at face value, to see him for who he is. But our own self-obsession, our own being in the center of our lives, our own commitment to have life on our terms forbids us from seeing Jesus clearly. 
it's blindness. It just blinds us. And so you know what this, all of this means? Is that you need help to come to Jesus. <laughs> you need help to come to Jesus. You need someone to snap you out of the trance that you're in. Do you believe that? And here's the incredibly good news. And the sad thing about a verse like this is some, some of us are going to struggle with it. But it's meant to be good news. It's meant to be really, really good news. Who is the one who's going to snap us out of the trance, who's going to bring us to Jesus? Oh, the Father. And he's a good Father. summarize where we're at remember where we started what Jesus is doing is he's talking to people who don't see him as the bread of life in some ways he's explaining why the people in front of him don't buy into him and you know like a, a spacecraft coming from space back into the earth's atmosphere we can easily bounce off it uh, at this point in time and sometimes even when uh, when we think about these weighty heavy theologies like no man can come to the Father and come to Jesus unless the Father draws him, we, can, we could even end up grumbling about God in this, couldn't we? Let me uh, just recap a couple of the things that, Je that Jesus has been saying in John chapter 6. John 6, 37, you've got the positive of what we've just seen in John 6, 44. All that the Father gives me will come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, Jesus is working from the positive to the negative. We've just seen that doing life on our own terms leaves us living in a false reality where we are unable to see Jesus clearly, which is what Scripture talks about in terms of being slaves to sin and being deceived. And here's, here's what I want you to hear. If no one intervened in our situation, no one would be saved. You hear that? If no one intervened in our situation, no one would be saved. I want you to hear this. Everyone would be lost. You feel that? You feel the weight of that? But here's the good news. God has intervened. God's a good father. And, and you know something? I, I, I'll, just, I'll just throw this out to you. I, I wasn't... I've got this in my notes. But do you know um, last week I talked about how God's a good, a good father and he adopts people into his family. Now, do you know, in human experience, do you know who the main actors are in pretty much every adoption? It's not the kids. All right? We just, we don't have a system where kids can run around and find this family and say, I'm going to adopt myself into that family. It doesn't work like that. Family, families work in our day, in terms of adoption, families work in our day where it's the mother or the father or the mother and the father who say, I want you to come and be in my family. So I think we can expect that God's going to do a similar thing. How has God intervened? Well, he doesn't overpower us and he doesn't force us. He doesn't coerce us. What does he do? Verse 44, he, he draws us. 
He woos us. He works to gain our affection and love. How does he do it? Well, he does it this way. He does it by teaching us. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Side note, is that not the most sublime thought to you? That's good to learn from people. I've learned from a lot of people. But the thought that God would just teach me directly, there's nothing that stirs me up more than that. (laughs) I love that thought. It's a quote from uh, Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There's lots in Scripture about how God's going to get to work in changing our hearts through Jesus. And you know, if you're someone who's deluded from idolatry and you're living in a false reality, you know something? There's nothing more that you need than a bit of truth. (laughs) Someone to come along and teach you and show you what is true and right and good. You know, teaching's key for those who have believed lies and lived in a false reality. And it's a key part of what God promised to do and what the New Testament talks about him doing. You know, the only way for you and I to see Jesus clearly for who he is and take him at face value is if God the Father comes and teaches our hearts about what he's like. He needs to bring revelation about who Jesus is and snap us out of the trance. I'll tell you something. I believe this with all of my heart. Once you see him for who he is, you won't be able to help yourself. (laughs) Amen? He is so good. It's like, you know, you have that moment where you go, what sort of idiot just wouldn't want this? When you see it clearly, um, you'll come to him. You know, that's uh, John 6, 44. Let me uh, wrap up this morning with um, uh, trying to answer a few questions that you might be asking. I I understand in a room like this, there's going to be people that don't agree with... uh, with what I've said this morning, even though I, th- I think Scripture teaches it quite clearly. And I want to um, just help you a little bit and say, uh, there are times where you just need to put your big boy and your big girl pants on, okay? Because there's just stuff that's kind of an adult, grown-up thing to do. And I'll tell you something that is an adult, kind of grown-up thing to do, and that's the fact that there are things that we just need to hold in tension, all right? And we just got to put our big boy and big girl pants on and be able to hold them in tension. Because our tendency as humans is like, we just want to close it out. You want to close it out, it's either got to be black or white. It's got to be that or that. Um, and there's, there's things in Scripture where we just can't close it out on one side because if we do, we're going to get unbiblical because there's going to be other Scriptures that are going to talk about things over here. Um, we like to categorize and pigeonhole things, uh, but at the end of the day, folks, uh, being able to hold things in tension is an adult thing to do. And so my encouragement to you as a church is like, let's, let's be mature in our thinking and be able to hold things in tension. So let me give you some examples of other things that we need to hold in tension, because some of you probably are thinking about some of the things I said and just, you know, you're having a car accident in your head. But we'll get to that in a minute. Here's, here's the first one. It's just a general one. This is not from Scripture. This is a general thing that most people hold in tension. Good parents never want to hurt their children, but they will discipline them. Have you ever, parents, have you ever had a moment where you just go, 
I need to bring some pain upon my children. And I'm not talking necessarily about physical pain because all discipline is, is some pain that you bring upon your kids. Have you ever brought pain upon them and just gone, I don't want to do this? I have. <laughs> but then at the same time, you go, no, actually, I need to do this. So you live in the tension of not wanting to hurt your kids, but you'll bring discipline into their lives to help them to grow up. All right? Here's... Let's, let's go with some other biblical ones. Just, just trying to help you out here. God exists in three persons who are all God, yet there is only one God. All right? Now you just go, okay, well, I tried that maths in year six and it didn't work. All right? Um, but we're talking about God here. So if we can understand everything about God, by default it means that he's less intelligent than us um here's a um here's a third one god is sovereign over every event we are responsible for every choice we make listen to this second corinthians 5 verse 10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Give an account for it. We'll listen to Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Which one's true? Both. All right, welcome to living intention. Um, welcome to that. Here's, now, they're getting harder, all right? So some of these cause car accidents in my heads. In my, my heads, my head. Not in Chernobyl today. Um, what about this one? God is all powerful and loving, yet evil exists. 1 John 4.16 says these three words amongst others. God is love. Jeremiah 32.27 says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And the answer is no. Nothing. So that's a tension you've got to live in. This is one that bends my mind a bit. All right? And um, you, you might be fine with this one, but I, I have struggled with this one in the past, so I don't spend that much time thinking about it. But uh, God wills for evil things to take place, yet is neither responsible nor complicit in it. Didn't do it. It's not responsible for it, but he wills it to happen. You see this in Acts 2 verse 23 about the death of Jesus on the cross. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There is no greater crime that humanity has ever committed against God than killing his son. Yet, that was God's plan. That was God's plan. Back to uh, John six forty four. This is a tension, right? Now, some people this morning will just go, well, what about human responsibility? Um, well, human responsibility is not nullified. If you look in verse um, 47 of John chapter 6 Jesus goes on to talk about that and he says truly truly I say to you whoever believes has eternal life there's still a responsibility to believe um, and here's the bottom line uh, what's going on between God and us is a relationship and a relationship requires that both parties are actually active in it 
Um, now, God's the one who makes the first decisive move, um, but it doesn't mean that those who don't come to him aren't responsible for their disbelief, their unbelief, I should say. Now, the big question that many of you would ask at this point in time, maybe, is um, why does God draw some people and not others? Anyone asking that? Well, and this will sound like a cop-out, right? But it's actually true. That's not really my question to answer. All right? That's, that's God's question to answer. God can do as he pleases, right? We know that he doesn't choose people based on their merit. Scripture is really, really clear about that. But he can do as he pleases, and, and the difficulty is that even as I say these things now, some of us are going, oh, hang on, we're starting to question whether God's good. And I just, don't go there. As best as you can, don't go there. Uh, you know the answer to whether God's good or not. And, and it was exactly what Peter said earlier on in the service. The cross definitively says God is good. He's a self-sacrificing God who is good. You know, you, you, you can't say that, that God doesn't love you. <laughs> he doesn't love people. You, you have to live with this tension and let him handle it. And for Western individualism, this is pretty humbling. Because <laughs> we, by default, just think that we're masters of our own destiny. And I want to say to you this morning, on multiple levels, not just on this one, that you are nowhere near as much of a master of your own destiny as you think you are. You know, people kind of say things like, but haven't we got free will? And I just go, yeah, well, you know what? The kind of choices that we can make, the kind of free will, I don't think you have to define it because no one here has the same kind of free will that Adam and Eve did before the fall. That's gone. And it goes when you believe a lie. It goes when you worship something other than God and you get enslaved to stuff. So there's, it's not just a clean thing anymore where you just go, it's, it's free will and I, people ought to just be able to choose. And I just go, well, the will is in bondage now. And people do get to make choices, but their choices are, are bent and they're twisted by the way that sin, the way that idolatry and the way that lies actually work. So how, how should we handle this? This is the... The last thing I want to say to you um, in the message here. What, what should we do? Well, we should um, engage in thankful and petitioning prayer. There's, there's lots of things to think about and to work through. And if you haven't kind of dived into this, this pool before, then it's probably all of a sudden you're just kind of going, man, what the? What is, what is going on here? And it is a deep pool, all right? But the thing you need to remember, the thing that you must, must remember is that God is good. And it's okay if you dive into some of these theological realities and you have to pull out from them because it's messing with your head <laughs> and you can't hold the tension together. I remember... Um, reading a, uh, a John Piper book called Spectac Spectacular Sins and Their Global Purpose. And um, he said in the book, it was all about uh, one of those 
tensions I put up there about God willing to bring about his plans and purposes through evil without being complicit or responsible for it. Um, and he said um, in his book, he said, if you get to the point where you question the goodness of God because you're struggling to hold things in tension, he said, you probably should stop reading. All right? And I never finished the book. Okay? Because the thing, and I don't know whether I ever will, and not because I don't think it's true, I, th- I think he does very well with all the texts, but within myself, I struggled to, uh, to keep remembering that God was good and it just kind of was a bit of a car crash for me. So it's okay. Like if, if I've jumped into a, a pool that I dragged in with me, uh, John has, uh, and that one's deep and it makes your head spin a bit, it's okay to put it down sometimes and not think about it. Um, how do we want to finish? We want to remember that God's good. We want to be thankful to God for his kindness in breaking the spell, the trance that we're in. And we want to be praying for people who don't know Jesus. And we want to be asking the Father to draw people to Jesus. This is actually really good news. Because if you're anything like me, there's been people where you've had the opportunity to share lots of stuff with them. And you kind of get to the point and you just go, I've told you, like everything about Jesus, why don't you just become a Christian now? Because a miracle needs to happen in their hearts. And you should pray for that miracle. So, thankful and petitioning prayer is, uh, is where, we should, where we should end. Okay, there you go. We're going to sing. And then uh, if anyone's got any questions, I'm going to try and answer a few questions. I promise that we'll get through them all. The uh, number for questions is on the screen. So as the worship team comes up, we'll just leave that on just for a little bit until we actually start singing. If you've got a question that you want to shoot through, shoot it through, um, and I'll do my best to, um, to give you something that's helpful as an answer to that. Uh, we are, and I am, I rang Nathan this morning, um, one of the elders here, and just had a chat with him about this, because uh, I am very concerned for you <laughs> with these kinds of matters, okay? And I'm very... I'm very protective that you maintain an understanding and clarity that God's good. And so we we will not shy away from talking about such things here at Restoration Church, but it matters how you walk out of this place on a Sunday. It matters to us. So uh, that's why we're having a Q&A today. Um, Anyway, why don't you jump up on your feet? I'll um, like to pray for you. Jesus, you know that uh, when I was 16, uh, I didn't want you. I've been in the church my whole life, but I wasn't, I couldn't see you. I couldn't see you clearly. Father, you, you drew me. And um, it wasn't coercive. It wasn't a uh, display of shock and awe. You drew me in, and you've uh, you've done that with many here, uh, many here. Um, don't remember how that happened, 
happened when they were young. Yet you were kind and you brought them close and you adopted them into your family. There's many here, God, who uh, we remember that day. We remember where we were, what we were doing. We remember the things that you said to us for the first time where we just heard them so clearly. And uh, thanks for teaching us and helping us to see you, helping us to, uh, to see Jesus. God, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you yet. And I pray, Holy Spirit, today that you would speak straight to their hearts. And Father, by your Spirit, you would draw them to Jesus.